Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. This is Martin. I'm back in San Francisco, and I am trying a new recording system. It's supposed to be crystal clear. You can be the the judge of that. I guess of uh, any complaints I've ever had about the show that I'm doing, um, people have said sound quality with phone guests, and hopefully this will alleviate that. Today, we're once again talking to someone from Chicago, uh, Gail Socheck. How are you doing, Gail? Great. Thanks for having me aboard. Sure. You sound pretty clear to me right now. That's good. Um, so you are an author. You're in uh, Chicago, and you have a couple of books regarding Chicago history. One is Marshall Fields. Is that your latest book? Uh, no, Marshall Fields uh, was published last year, uh, although it still remains a very popular book. It's uh, based on the premise of how the Marshall Fields uh, empire really helped build the city of Chicago. So it's titled Marshall Fields, the store that helped build Chicago. Okay, so I definitely Um, want to talk about that. And the other one that sounded really uh, exciting, you mentioned to me just a minute ago, uh, Calamities. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, it's Chicago Calamities, Disaster in the Windy City, and I've touched on some of the uh, largest calamities with either the greatest loss of life or the greatest financial impact on the city. And there's, we've had an unfortunate number of them, but oh, really? uh, it, was, it was an interesting book to write. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the, the uh, Mrs. Larry's cow was right in there somewhere. Absolutely, and uh, the cow, uh, you'll probably be glad to know, has pretty much been absolved of all blame, (laughs) although they're not too sure. Yes, they're not too sure exactly what caused it, but there's a very strong theory leaning towards thinking that it was a comet that was passing over at the time. Oh, you're kidding. Now, I thought it started in O'Leary's barn, but no, huh? Well, it did start in O'Leary's barn, or actually behind O'Leary's barn. But um, what they've discovered, um, there were also severe, severe fires uh, kind of ringing the Great Lakes the same night, same time. Um, There was one in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, that didn't get a lot of press because Chicago was, of course, so dramatic, but it actually had a much larger loss of life. Um, 300 and some people died in the Chicago fire, where over 2,000 died in Peshtigo. Wow, and never even heard in, of that. Gee. Yeah, and some in Michigan the same night. And um, a scientist has, has plotted out the fires versus the passing of a, um, the, a meteorite that or I should say a comet that night. And he believes that it was possibly meteorites from the uh, comet that launched all these fires because the whole Midwest was experiencing a severe drought. Isn't that something? So all this time we've had a, no pun intended, beef against the cow. It was, right. it was probably innocent. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it did start there, but um, they believe it started outside the barn, uh, probably not right in the barn, or even if it was inside, it was. Uh, it, it's still pretty unclear what happened, but they have proven that the O'Leary family was sound asleep at the time it happened and, and couldn't have been out there with the cows. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Well, you heard it here first, folks. 
And yeah. um, I want to talk, we'll talk about Marshall Fields in a minute, but did that building itself where that was located at the time burn down? Uh, yes, it did. It, it was It was badly destroyed. It was pretty much gutted. Um, Fields and his employees had showed up at the building and done everything they could to save it. They were, um, they had their own team of drivers and they were transporting merchandise as quickly as they could away from the, the building to save mm. some of their merchandise. And they had a water tank on the, on the roof that they were using to um, keep pouring water on the side of the building. But what eventually happened, the fire moved around and took out the, the city waterworks and everybody lost water pressure and that was pretty much the mm. end. Mm, wow, wow. And what was, uh, you know, you always hear about the Great Chicago Fire. I think that's what it's called. The other fire you mentioned <clears throat> with such a great loss of life, um, how come, mm-hmm. uh, I know I'm kind of skipping around here, but how come you never hear about that? I mean, because Chicago is so dramatic. At the time, Chicago was such a growing city and really which is going to sound strange to somebody in California, but Chicago was considered the frontier west back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was um, really a big deal. It made newspapers internationally. The fire in Peshtigo was farmers and, and small, you know, little groups of, of recent immigrants, and it just didn't get any press. Wow. Even now, how, many miles, how many miles apart were they to establish the meteorite? Uh... Um, Peshtigo from Chicago is probably about 200 miles. Oh, wow. Boy, now it does make, does make sense that something like that could have happened. A natural phenomenon. How about that? Yeah, it just ringed the, uh, the bottom of Lake Michigan. Um, Peshtigo would be uh, on the west coast of Lake Michigan, but towards the bottom, Chicago is at the bottom, and then some fires in Michigan occurred on the east coast of Lake Michigan. So if they fell in a round splatter pattern, those that didn't hit the water would have just taken out those exact areas. Sure, sure. Okay, let's of talk about... Of course, ab- this hasn't been proven, but... Right, yeah. Let's talk yeah. about some of the other calamities that you uh, was uh, noted in that book. Well, some of them were really interesting. Um, one of the ones that I find just hard to get my head around was the uh, sinking of the Eastland. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was a passenger ship that was docked in the Chicago River, um, taking employees of the uh, Western Electric Company on a Sunday picnic. Hmm. And the ship was known to be unstable. And it had actually, the problem had actually been exacerbated by the sinking of the Titanic. Um, after the Titanic sunk, it was ruled that all ships had to carry enough lifeboats for uh, all their passengers. Well, what happened was all the boat owners, ship owners out there just simply slapped lifeboats on the top deck. Well, we've got a ship that's already top-heavy. The addition of the weight of the lifeboats just made it even less stable. And it actually rolled over in broad daylight on a sunny, beautiful day, three feet away from the dock, but the people were trapped underneath the docks, underneath the decks, I should say, and about uh, over 800 people, I believe it was, drowned. Oh, my goodness. Three feet away from the dock. And, I mean, it's so dock. hard to imagine three feet away from the dock. You know, but they, just, wow. they were trapped inside the boat. Yeah. And right. whole families were wiped out. More uh, casualties due to the Titanic. How about that? <laughs> yeah, and I believe it was actually, it still is actually considered one of the greatest maritime disasters in U.S. history. And here it happened in downtown Chicago at a dock. 
Right, right. I know there was one in during the at the very end of the Civil War where a boiler blew up, and there were like uh, that was right up there with the number of people that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what are some of the other calamities of Chicago? Well, one that I think is almost a little funny, but I I shouldn't say funny. That's that's okay. not the right word to use since T- it created hear. great financial stress. Uh, <laughs> in 1992, in more recent history, um, Chicago had an extremely severe underground flood. Uh, the water wasn't hitting street level, but all the basements of all the buildings in downtown Chicago were flooding. And nobody could understand what was happening. Again, it was a beautiful, sunny spring day, and they assumed a water main had broken, and they, the city was running around shutting off water mains, and the water kept rising and rising. And it wasn't until a very astute uh, radio announcer happened to hear, as he was listening to the, the police broadband, happened to hear that somebody had spotted fish in the water. And he realized that fish don't come through water mains too often. So he realized it had to be something something else. And they actually found Chicago is riddled with these underground tunnels. And one tunnel was going under the Chicago River at one point, And it actually had its ceiling breached uh, by people doing some work on the river, um, putting in some piers on the river. Uh-huh. And finally, the ceiling collapsed. And it spread through these underground tunnels and flooded the entire city. The city was shut down for three days. Wow, this is only in 1992, huh? In 1992, and the the thing that's kind of amusing about it is it became an issue with the insurance companies. They will pay for leaks or water backups, but not for floods, which are considered an act of God. So there was quite a bit of legal wrangling, and eventually the courts did decide that it was basically a giant leak, and so the insurance companies had to pony up the money. But nobody wants to say the Great Leak of 1992. (laughs) We still go with the Great Flood. (laughs) Well, it's definitely not an act of God when people are driving pilings in for a dock. You know. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now you mentioned uh, financial calamities as well. Is that like the Great Depression and, and, uh, and other times? Or did Chicago, did Chicago have a unique situation financially? Uh, no, when I was referring to this, this flood, uh, oh, I it see. created, it was one of the biggest uh, financial disasters the city had. It cost, uh, off the top of my head, a couple billion, I wow. believe, in lost trade and everything due to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Chicago was actually lucky uh, during times like the Depression. It was certainly impacted, but nowhere near to the degree that, that some of the other towns in that were. I mean, you see these Dust Bowl pictures and that, and I mean, People in Chicago certainly lost businesses, and and there were hard times, but I think they wrote it out relatively well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, something I've never really considered or thought about, in the 1848-1849, the gold rush in California did... Did a lot of Chicagoans uh, head west at that time? There were certainly some, but I think it was more people were heading to Chicago at that time. It was becoming more of a banking and commerce center. And just because of its placement uh, where it's located on the Great Lakes, plus its nearness to the Mississippi, it very quickly became a, a, a fantastic shipping port. They were able to build a canal between the Chicago River and the Mississippi, well, actually through the Illinois River and then to the Mississippi, that opened up shipping where somebody could ship something all the way from the East Coast, all the way down to New Orleans, all the way down through the the Mississippi, through Chicago. So it was becoming an extremely important shipping port. Mm -hmm. If there's nothing else that comes to mind right off the bat in the calamities, we can move forward and talk about Marshall Fields, if you'd like. Sure. 
the only thing I know about Marshall Fields is at one time or does now had a Tiffany ceiling, Tiffany glass, febrile glass. Yes. 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 It's uh, the Fevril glass uh, dome, which is still there. Um, I believe it is still to this day the largest in the world. It's, uh, I'm going to say, 3 million pieces handset. Wow. And it's just amazing. It's just gorgeous. Now, is it like mosaic? Yes, uh huh. Uh -huh. And unfortunately, he didn't live to see it. He had uh, set up the plan uh, with his second in command, John G. Shedd, who also gave Chicago Shedd Aquarium. And Field passed away before the, before the dome was set. But he had already set the, the wheels in motion, so it, it was uh, done shortly after his death. Uh huh. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Marshall Fields. It wasn't, I know it wasn't originally called that, but it started. Was it around? It was right around the Civil War era that it, the store began, and was it Lightman or something like that? What was the name of the? Yeah, Field and Leader. That was oh, his leader. partner. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was actually. Um, it's kind of hard to pinpoint the exact uh, birth of Marshall Fields because he first began um, as a partner in uh, Cooley Farnsworth. Cooley and Farnsworth. Um, he later became partners with uh, Levi Leader. And there were all these various incarnations of the, of the business, but um, it actually was named um, Marshall Field solely in, uh, oh, I'm going to make myself a liar here. I want to say 1871. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. date escape, the exact date escapes me, but um, he, uh, it, it basically they considered the date starting in the, in the mid-1850s. Yeah. Now, Even though if you want to get real technical, it was probably not solely his until later. Mm -hmm. Now, what uh, I hear a lot of people, well, I've heard um, people complain about the acquisition um, by Macy's and that it's such a landmark. What kind of, uh, what kind of impact did, did the store have on Chicago that made people so sentimental oh, about it? It's almost hard to measure because... Field had done so many things that nobody had done before him. I mean, for example, the original business district was along Lake Street in Chicago near the river, which at the time was kind of just an open sewer. Now it's beautiful. Um, and Field, along with uh, Potter Palmer, who was sort of a, I won't say a mentor, but definitely somebody he looked up to, uh, they basically made the decision themselves to single-handedly move the business district to State Street, and the rest of the merchants followed them and made State Street our grand retail district. Um, he gave money for so many things. I mean, we have the Field Museum. We have, he right. gave money to the um, University of Illinois. Uh, John Shedd gave us the Shedd Aquarium. We have um, just innumerable places that he, he either directly paid for or helped along in some way. Mm -hmm. And also what he did that I think really kind of makes him a standout, after the Chicago fire, not only did he reopen his business temporarily in a horse part, actually, of all things, oh, wow. just to get some merchandise out to people that needed things for living, he was handing money and merchandise out to, to his competitors to help them get back on their feet because he was wow. smart enough to know that without competition, you know, you can't grow a business district with one vendor. Wow. That is really uh, astonishing. I mean, yeah. to hear that part about it. Uh, now, what type of now this is a, a and has been for for many many years a very large department store. I, I've been there. Um, isn't there a, a bronze clock, a beautiful clock uh, out front or something? 
There's actually two. Um, there's one on either side of the building, and it. Uh, are not, not have like a green patina now, and they mm. have been for many years. They're really iconic. Almost anything you see about Chicago, if they're using a visual, will have that clock in the picture. As a matter of fact, most of our news stations and that still use the clock in the background, and it's, it was always meet me under the clock, which I know some other cities have had their department stores with kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's probably one of the most quickly recognizable parts of Chicago's architecture, I would say. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what type of uh, merchandise did they handle? Was it just about everything? Yeah. In later years, they um, began to lean more towards, like, clothing, jewelry, and that. But when he first started out, he did everything. He had hardware. He had, oh, just... He had uh, a foundry in the store. He really? had an optical department. He did furs, I mean, sporting goods, uh, guns, anything you could imagine. Um, towards the later years, it became much more of just a, a higher-end department store. But the thing that I think made Fields so special is they, they were never particularly um, arrogant about their class level. You could walk in there and spend $100,000 or walk in there and spend $10 and be treated the same. Nice. And nice. It, it was remarkable. I mean, it was so obvious to anybody you could be, feel welcome in there. Now, you mentioned earlier competitors. Who were the competitors? In his early days, uh, their biggest competitor would have been Potter Palmer. They later ended up buying uh, Field and Leader, later ended up taking over his business as his successors, and that got blended into the empire. Um, Most of their early competitors are gone now. The only one from the early days that's really still lingering is uh, Carson Peary Scott, who's now owned by Bonton. and just recently, they gave up their downtown location down from, uh, down on State Street because the building needed remodeling, and they've given that up and moved out to the suburbs. So we don't have any real great presences on State Street anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Marshall Fields, they were in uh, San Francisco, too? Am I thinking right at one point? Do you know? I believe they did, yeah. I know they were down in Texas. Um, they were throughout the Midwest, and I believe they had a store in San Francisco at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't swear to how long they had it, though. Some of them were kind of brief transitions. But mm-hmm. at one point, they were up to 63 stores. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Wow. And all began right there in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, the presence is so linked to everything. Even when I was writing the Calamities book, I couldn't write without stumbling across references to Marshall Fields again. When the Eastland turned over, it was Marshall Fields and company that sent employees running with sheets and blankets to cover the dead or comfort the wounded. Um, when the Silly things. When the, I, I'm kind of a Titanic buff, and when the Titanic went down, um, they had tons and tons of merchandise destined for Marshall Fields from the Paris buying office. And uh, it's just so entwined in the city's history. And I think that's why there was such a pushback when Macy's came in and, and dumped the name. I mean, it's it's sort yeah. of like, you know, wanted, growing uh, up with your brother Joe, and at some point somebody says, call him <laughs> Dave now. You know, it's, just, it's not the same thing. Right. Yeah. Reason they didn't keep any part of the name, is that has that ever been addressed? Well, it's been addressed. I don't know if it's been addressed satisfactorily. Mm-hmm. The, the reason given was that they wanted to create the national identity and that they could they could save money by, for example, only printing up one set of bags and that. I think that 
probably what they lost in brand recognition probably hurt them more would be my guess. Um, they have kind of stepped back a little bit and started now with a uh, it's been called various things, but it's my Macy's program where they're trying to regionalize a little bit more because when they first took over all the Macy's stores, they ended up, first of all, in situations where they'd have a mall with two or three Macy's anchoring them because they bought all the other stores. Mm. Um, they ended up with situations where they'd be shipping, you know, fur coats and mittens down to Florida in January, and <laughs> it just wasn't working too well. Mm -hmm. So they, they've tried to regionalize it a little bit more, but I think for many Chicagoans, the only regionalization that would really matter is getting the field's name back, at least on State Street. Sure, sure. Uh, and people are pretty emotional about it still to this day, is that right? Yeah, very much so. There's still a very active group called Field Fan Chicago. They still hold protests on the anniversary of the name change. They still have a very active website and Facebook page. And it seems that there's a couple of different reasons for the response. One is just the discounting of Chicago's history as if it didn't occur. It seems sort of revisionist mm. that, you know, and when we see things even with the Macy's store, like Fields had a, a wonderful culinary council that, that promoted local chefs and that, well, now it's the Macy's Culinary Council. It seems like a lot of what Fields had has just, their history in it has just been obliterated. Um, mm. The other thing is there's a perception that among many people that the store is much lower end now, mm -hmm. where Fields was, you know, more comparable to say a Nordstrom's or a Von Moore stores or one of those. Now it's more, you know, more like J.C. Penney's. Not that there's anything wrong with Penney's, of course, mm -hmm. but it, it's it's a little more downscale than it was. Right. And um, I think those are probably two of the the biggest complaints. Mm -hmm. Now that book is available now. Uh, through Amazon? Yes, uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, Borders.com, or direct from History Press, the publisher at um, HistoryPress.net. Okay, let's uh, let's move on just a little bit and talk about, I want to go back in a few minutes and talk more about the history of Chicago in general, but can sure. we talk about the new book you're writing at this point? Yeah, I actually just uh, completed a book. It just came out a couple of weeks ago, and it's uh, Door County Tales. And for those of you not familiar with Door County, it's a peninsula in the state of Wisconsin that juts out into Lake Michigan. And it's really a, a very popular tourist destination for people from, from Chicago and the Twin Cities and Milwaukee and Madison. Um, it's, it's kind of a strange place. It's in some ways lost in time and in other ways very progressive. It's, it's a lot of artists, a lot of, a lot of writers, a lot of fishing boats, a lot of fine restaurants, um, wineries, things like that. And it's really, really a wonderful place to be. And, uh, the book is, that book is entitled Door County Tales, Shipwrecks, Cherries, and Goats on the Roof. <laughs> and the reason for that, the shipwrecks, uh, the area around it, the way it got its name is Door County, came from the French, uh, Death Door because it was, uh, the waters were so unpredictable, it has the greatest amount of shipwrecks for anybody of fresh water in the United States, they've estimated. Wow. And uh, they're known for their cherry production and um, grape production now because the, the climate gets to be very much like the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. And the Goats on the Roof is a nod to one of the kind, kind of iconic local restaurants that's a Norwegian restaurant, and it has a sodded roof with a herd of goats grazing on top. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know, it sounds like a real intriguing place. And it really is. It's beautiful. And how far out outside of the city is that? Um, it's about a little over 200 miles north of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the history of Chicago, uh, what was the uh, what when was Chicago founded as a city, and was it because of shipping lanes and the Great Lakes all right there? That certainly helped them. Chicago uh, was settled pretty much in the about the 1830s, um, and a lot of it at that point was fur trading. Um, there was a very uh, rich area for the fur trading, and with the waters of the of Lake Michigan and the various rivers and that, it was pretty easy to transport things. Um, once they built the Illinois-Michigan Canal, which is actually uh, just a shallow uh, shipping canal between the Illinois River and the Mississippi, it just completely opened it up. And that was in the 1860, I believe, something like that. Um, and that's when it really became a, a shipping spot. Uh, also, all the railroads came here very quickly. Right, right. Yeah, so it became kind of the metropolis. But I, I would say fur trading is what really started it, but it, it quickly became, uh, you know, banking and, and other forms of capitalism that took over. Right, right. And there's, all, there's a lot of characters from Chicago you always hear about, uh, from gangsters to uh, people larger than life. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I think Chicago's long had a reputation as, as a mob town. Um, I know a couple, well, several years ago I was in Spain, and was explaining to somebody who had very little English that I came from Chicago. And he said, oh, Chicago. And he said, cubbies. And then went bang, 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 bang with his fingers. <laughs> he knew the cubs and he knew gangsters. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least he knew and where actually, it was. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And actually, we've had some pretty notorious uh, governors here in the state of Illinois, too, that have put us on the map a little more lately in an embarrassing fashion. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Was Al Capone from Chicago? Yes, uh-huh. Um, as a matter of fact, he's buried now in the western suburbs, but he was from Chicago. And uh, interestingly enough, he also spent a great deal of time in Door County. When I was researching the Door County book, I found that um, one of the restaurants up there had actual tunnels built underground that went from the restaurant to the shoreline where if the feds came looking for him, he could run out through one of these tunnels and hop into a speedboat and be gone before they even got to the back door of the restaurant. Wow. But um, he had quite an interesting setup in Chicago, too. I mean, I've seen some buildings in Chicago with the same thing, tunnels under the streets and that, so he had escape routes. And as wow. you know, they never got him for any of his crimes. Right, for tax, tax evasion. evasion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he died of syphilis. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Which, uh, and there's actually an interesting story that very few people know about the city is how we came to the name of O'Hare Airport. Um, Al Capone's lawyer was a guy named Fast Eddie O'Hare, and he was uh, the one that kept him out of jail and kept him like Velcro for a long time. <laughs> and Eddie had a son that he loved very, very much named Butch, and finally... Eddie had a change of heart and decided he didn't want his son to grow up in this in this horrible gang atmosphere he had lived in. Um, he went clean. He turned on Al Capone. He's the one that really put Capone in jail and was killed by gang gunfire later on in his life. But his son went on to become a World War II hero 
and single-handedly staved off an attack of uh, Japanese bombers against an aircraft carrier he was flying out of. And that was Butch O'Hare, and that's how Air O'Hare Airport got named. Wow, that's pretty cool. Do you have any books that, I know you said you just completed one, do you have any books that you're going to write or in the process of writing? Yeah, I have another one I'm uh, in the process of working on now that I hope will be released next year, um, also for History Press, and it's going to be about uh, ghost stories of Door County. Um, Wisconsin has a reputation of being one of the most haunted states for some strange reason, but Door County especially, it's got a lot of lighthouses, a lot of maritime history there, a lot of sinkings and, and crazy stuff and um, it's just really rich with different ghost stories so we're going to try and capture some of the spookier side of the peninsula wow now uh, I wonder if it has anything to do with cheese somehow but, uh, <laughs> it could be yeah. <laughs> or yeah. all the lining kugels I don't know which <laughs> <laughs> now that that sounds like that would be a really fun story to write but tell me how you do that are you getting in your car and driving around and following leads and things like that how does that go um, a little bit of that. Um, I've also, uh, I'm going to be partnering up. There's a group that, a uh, trolley company that does trolley tours, ghost tours. They also do a haunted pub crawl, which is very successful for them. And they've got a lot of stories they can share. Um, there's a historical society that has had some strange happenings and some odd pictures in um, some of the houses that they have restored. So I've got some avenues there. And um, all in all, it's really interesting. Yeah. The hard thing is, all my life I've been a, a, a nonfiction writer and working very, very hard and very diligently to get my facts straight. And I, I keep tripping over myself researching ghosts. How do you get the facts <laughs> straight with ghosts? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a little tough. Yeah, this yeah, one's going to. for accuracy. And <laughs> yeah, this one's going to have to be more allure than anything else, I think. Yeah, I'm going to have to put on my storytelling hat instead of trying to research it as as, as much as I planned on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, so are you a native Chicagoan? Yeah, born and bred. I've never been outside of Cook County. <laughs> oh, is that right? Is that right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and generational? Um, pretty much. My grandparents moved here pretty early. Um, my paternal grandparents came by way of uh, Czechoslovakia, actually, and my maternal ones were French-Canadian, so I had a pretty strange uh, <laughs> mix to begin with, but they mm -hmm. settled in Chicago and never left. Yeah, yeah. So where would someone find, now you mentioned Amazon earlier, do you happen to have a website? Um, I have one in the works that's not completely set up yet. I do have uh, uh, an author's page on Amazon.com mm -hmm. that'll show all my works. Yeah. And uh, I'd actually done a lot of writing, um, and actually I should say still am, doing writing um, in the pet and vet industry. I have a lot of uh, books on exotic birds and that. So I had a funny time. I went into a Barnes & Noble to do a book signing on the Marshall Fields book, and the manager said to me, do you know there's another author with your name? I said, no, there's not. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, this person I said, no, it's me. I'm just that goofy. I write lots of different stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a lot of range right there. Yeah. So, do you have a, a veterinarian background, or just a? Uh, no, but I've well, I've bred exotic parrots for oh a long time now, about fifteen twenty years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Raised parrots, so um, and been very active in raising money for avian research and and diseases of uh, companion birds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I was actually a writer before that, so it's just kind of all come together. Yes, and you said the publisher is called History. What what did you say the publisher was? The History Press. History. The History, the History Press. Press. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, they're located in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh huh. Yeah. 
Uh-huh, great. Actually, well, they're an offshoot of a very large publisher in the United Kingdom. Um, the History Press has been in the United Kingdom for very, very many years, but uh, the one here in the United States is uh, kind of their fledgling and has really taken off. I think they published their millionth book, their, wow. their, printed their millionth copy, I should say, just recently. Wow, that's a lot of words. Um, yeah. One last thing about Marshall Fields. Um, how much of an impact did your book make, or did it at all, as far as you know? Well, the interesting thing is, um, I believe the Barbara's Bookstore that operates out of the old Marshall Fields, the new Macy's store, um, is probably one of my best customers for my oh. book. And what I'd love to see happen eventually is for Macy's to consider using at least the State Street store as kind of a... Oh, kind of a regional um, incubator for fashion or whatever with Marshall Fields' name on it. I can understand them being unwilling to bring back the entire chain, but if they could at least bring back that historic landmark, mm -hmm. honor the Fields' name, um, they could use it kind of as a test market for lots of different stuff. I think it would be extremely successful. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, you've been a great guest, and uh, thank you so much for uh, being on our show today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Martin. I enjoyed it. You bet. Okay, so this is Martin with Gail Socek, and we're signing off.